0: Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: Make sure that you're ready to do this. If you haven't taken a step toward being an investor or being an operator, make sure that you're ready and you're armed with information. But that said, if you are ready, bet on yourself because we're only on this planet for a little bit.
2: Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed, and I'm here with Eddie Ring. Eddie is joining us from Los Angeles, California. He's the founder and CEO of New Standard Equities. They syndicate and JV West Coast value-add apartment deals. In their current portfolio, they have around 2,000 units in 13 properties in greater Seattle, Northern California, and Southern California. Eddie, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're currently focused on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. First, thanks a lot for having me on your show. I'm happy to be here. So I started this company back in 2010, and my sole mission in life is to do things that I've done before. So I don't like to take a lot of risk. I like to do things that has been successful, and that means I kind of go out and do the same thing all the time, buy the same types of properties, the same sort of demographics, execute a very, very similar business plan. And I do it in similar markets, markets that I know like the back of my hand. So what I'm doing today is kind of similar to what I've done for the last 10, 12 years. We go out, we look for underperforming assets that could use dollars to fix problems and where I can maintain a strong cash flow and occupancy with my current demographic. So that means I'll go into, say, a class B property and find a way to improve the rent vis-a-vis what I'm seeing in the market and execute that plan and slowly turn units. I don't empty buildings. I just kind of do it on natural turnover.
2: Gotcha. Eddie, the first thing I keyed in on there was that you don't like to take risks, but you started an apartment company in 2010. Yeah. Tell me about your timing there. Why 2010 for a guy who doesn't like to take risks?
1: Well, it's funny because I don't like to take risks that I don't understand. Back in 2010, obviously, we were coming out of the Great Recession. I had been working for another company, a very big brand name, institutional type investor. And I understood and knew this business of value-add apartment operations and repositioning. And so even in 2010, because I was betting on myself and I was betting on what I already know that I know, I didn't think I was taking a very big risk. But it's, it's all a matter of perspective. If I set about the task of building a spaceship company, I'd be way out ahead of myself.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's a big difference between having a background working for an institutional investor in this space and being a marine biologist and deciding, it's 2010, I'm say it doesn't feel risky. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> That's like something more like I would have done back then. I came into this from youth ministry. Eddie, I often struggle with this when explaining what I do to the apartment investor community at large. I'm an owner-operator of apartments in Cincinnati, Ohio. Given your experience or track record, it's a fairly basic question, but I'd like to hear your answer. Do you think that there's a difference between a value-add business plan and a reposition business plan? When you use those terms, do they mean different things? And if so, what are they? That's actually a great question,
1: and I've thought about that in the past, and I'm glad you're asking it because I do think there's a difference. I believe that you can have a value-add apartment opportunity or apartment project where you're going in and maybe you understand that you can make a little nicer kitchen and you can fix up the common areas. Maybe you add a fitness center, but that's the extent of it. But you can also find an apartment project that's in, say, a B-class condition, and you might find that there are no other B-plus or A-minus condition apartments in the submarket. only super high-end Class A luxury. And so in those circumstances, I think that there is a repositioning play. A true repositioning play is a rebranding. It's taking your community that had previously been known to be X and you're really creating a new space for it in Y. We love to do bona fide repositioning deals because it brings in all kinds of different skill sets that I have and my team has on the creative side, on the marketing, the rebranding and really finding that new niche. That said, that costs more money and you better get a better return on your investment for that activity. But I do think that there is a distinction between value-add and
2: repositioning. There are a couple of places I want to take this, Eddie. The first I want to ask, you were just saying that you have a preference. You didn't say to move slowly through your business plan, but that you like to keep occupied apartments occupied, renovate, move tenants in over time. I know some people who, when they talk about repositioning the way that you do, rebranding a space changing the culture, if culture is the right word, shifting Mm -hmm. the community who is interested in living in that space, shifting your tenant base, that's a reposition. I know a lot of people who would say that if you're going to reposition a property, you need to do it as fast as possible, which may include, some people would say emptying the building of tenants, depending on what situation you found the property in. But I know I have personally experienced difficulty in repositioning an apartment building when I'm letting a below market tenant base stay in some of the building while trying to also rent it at or even sometimes slightly above market. How do you reconcile that with your repositions? That if you're choosing to move at a slower pace and just get things done over time and maintain occupancy, does that not cause problems in attracting a new tenant base to your properties when the below market tenant base is still there? Yes, it
1: can. It just means you have to do it even more cautiously. One of the reasons I like to move slowly is just in case I'm wrong, generally that hasn't happened, but I don't want to empty a building only to have to refill it back up with the same profile or the same resident. To be wrong about an opportunity is made worse if you've already ruined what you had. So I kind of like to go slowly to make sure that what we've got is what we expected at the front end. And again, every property is different. If you're taking over something that maybe had some crime problems or something that really had a bad name in the news, you really need to unwind the project. And I would go and rename it immediately and get a new logo and really start that process. But other times it warrants a slow and go approach. And you're right that there is a balancing act because you're going to have a current profile and a current tenant base that is far beneath the new tenant base in terms of demography and sort of willingness to pay the higher rent, et cetera. You've got to really, really be careful with that. Your neighbors talk to each other, and that's probably one of the bigger problems. However, a lot of residents that I've found, they appreciate the newer apartment, the newer look, the newer feel, and they also understand that they're paying for that. So, If I'm in a part of the economic cycle where all of a sudden they're feeling like they're overpaying because the guy next door is paying $300 less in rent, and he can't or she can't discern the difference between their beautiful stainless steel fridge package and quartz countertops versus their 1960s vintage refrigerators and whatnot, that's a distinction that we've got the wrong tenancies in that newly renovated product. But ultimately, I do like to make sure that on my repositioning deals that I was right. I did one project up in greater Seattle, 1940s vintage. I usually don't go that old. But this was a 1940s vintage former military barracks. And it was known as Bremerton Gardens. And it had a horrible name in the community. It's a smallish town, maybe forty fifty thousand 50,000 or something like that. It was heavily military-concentrated. And people were paying very, very little money to live with beautiful views of Puget Sound. And I came in and I looked at the project and I immediately thought of a 1940s fishing village. I don't know why that came into my head, but I was, you know what? This is almost like Main Street Disneyland or the Truman Show. I was like, no, no, no. I can turn this into something really, really cool and fun to live in. Yes, the rent will go precipitously higher but people will enjoy this. It'll be like living in this cool little town as opposed to a rundown former military barracks. So with that, I wanted to get that process going right away because it was in such bad condition that I rebranded immediately and started putting the architectural elements together as soon as I possibly could. And that took the better part of 12 months before I got the prior tenancy out and fully turned over. But it was a huge success. We bought that for thirteen million, sold it for thirty-five. So that was nice. a good execution.
2: Bought for thirteen million, but how much had to be put into it? About uh, two, two million. About two, yeah. yeah. So that is a good deal. Yeah, Eddie. When it comes to value add or reposition, and how steep of a budget or how intensive a business plan is going to be required, I often hear investors talk about occupancy rates. I think the main reason that they do it is that banks are focused on that occupancy rate when they're looking at trailing financials. And so you know that you hear that above 80% occupancy is value add, below 80% occupancy is a reposition. I can see there are properties that I've taken over where I had 50% physical occupancy or less, and even though I wasn't changing the culture of the community, I wasn't rebranding the building. It was still a pretty heavy lift. Even though I was leaving the monument signs in place, just changing the phone number on them. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, it's a great question because I generally don't do business in markets that uh, where assets fall that far. So rather than think about. Whether it's value-add or repositioning based on the occupancy, what we see on the West Coast is, like right now, my entire portfolio, I think I'm 98% occupied across the board. Maybe there's one project that's exposed to about 92% or something like that. So I've got some eviction. We're still dealing with the COVID eviction stuff here on the West Coast. It's not fun. But there's such a shortage of housing, really, in every single market that I play in that we can find a project that's 95% full, but that needs a full repositioning. Or similarly, a project that's 85% that just needs some TLC, and it's a minor repositioning. I've done both. But I think the key for us is investors like their cash flow. So we like to make sure we're distributing quarterly. And... Like I said, if we're wrong and we renovate a project or something like that, or renovate a unit, and we can't get that rent. If it's sitting there for two, three, four weeks and I can't get that rent, I'm not going to put another one into the renovation program. I'm going to hold it off. I'll rent it off for the classic price and just wait and see what happens with the market and see what we're missing. Yeah, the key is to not spend the money if you're not going to get the added rent bump, but then of absolutely spend the money if you are getting it and do that as quickly as you can.
2: Can you give us an example of a time when you tested the market to see whether or not your spend was going to be justified by rent increases, testing the market to see how your tenant base reacted to that? Yeah.
1: In fact, really interesting example in San Jose, California, we have a beautiful project that is more of a value add than a full repositioning, as I kind of talked about. But this is one where we have basically all two bedrooms, so either two bedroom, one bath or two bedroom, two bath. And we executed our plan and immediately we started getting a very healthy rent bump on the two bedroom, two bathroom units and the two bedroom, one bathroom units just sat. So we immediately stopped renovating all of the two bedroom, one bathroom units and saved that cash. I mean, we were spending twelve or $15,000 or something like that on each unit. But the two-bedroom units were commanding a $250 premium after the renovation. So that was one where we were able to actually see that for whatever reason, the market really preferred the two-bedroom, two-bathroom units and were willing to pay more for a nicer version of that. Whereas we couldn't get a single penny out of renovating the two-by-one units, which is fascinating. I never would have expected. I thought maybe $50 or 75 or some number, but no, it was such an undesirable unit at the time that uh, it didn't justify spending any money on
2: it. Let me give my own example that'll lead into my next question, Eddie. A lot of the apartment inventory in Cincinnati is built mid-1960s to early 80s. Brick construction, four families, 12 families. And then larger versions of very similar layouts, very similar apartments. So I have a property in a B area of greater Cincinnati outside of the city where I have one of these 1968 builds, all one bedrooms, living room, galley kitchen, the bathrooms right behind it, and the bedrooms in the back. And the galley kitchen has like a little dining area off of it. Well... One of the things that's become really common, this is something all of our listeners ought to already be familiar with, the open concept floor plan Mm -hmm. and the idea that the kitchen is a part of the living space Mm -hmm. and not necessarily a separate working space. So one of the things I've seen within my own portfolio is how much of a change there is when you take out that wall that makes the kitchen a galley kitchen and either do something like an island or peninsula or just do an L-shaped kitchen on two walls but open up the kitchen to the main living areas. According to all of the rent comps, apartments.com, Zillow, our experience, rentometer, all of those things, these were supposed to be $800 a month apartments. We decided to try this out with one of them and got 900 a month immediately. Mm-hmm. And the reason was it wasn't just the nicer floors, the nicer appliances, It was the actual change to the floor plan, making the space feel larger, brighter, more sophisticated that came from taking out that wall between the kitchen and the living area. So you had that kind of open concept living, dining, kitchen, and I've seen that work in other places. Being able to do that and being able to garner above market rent is proving to us that with this 12-unit apartment building, we can reposition. And we can change the community and the culture of the property because we can attract a tenant base who is willing to pay above market rent based on what everything that's happening around us, because they're willing to pay more for a nicer space. The question coming from this for you, Eddie, is interior specific. What are the things that you're doing that are leading to the most success with repositioning your apartment buildings? I feel like exterior is obvious. We can talk about monument signs and resurfacing parking lots, changing the color scheme, making it pop for the dumpsters in the right place. I feel like a lot of that is obvious, specific to the interiors and inside your apartments. What is it you're doing that leads to success in repositioning your property?
1: Yes, and I'm seeing the same thing in a lot of our buildings. We frequently rip out the old kitchens and turn them into, generally speaking, L-shaped kitchens. And they are 100% value-add and opportunity to reposition. We have a project. It's a smaller one a roughly 80, maybe 78 units or something like that. Smaller for our portfolio, but... In Fremont, California, which is Silicon Valley, it's all tech, it's Google Tech Workers basically, where the single family home is $1,400 a foot. It's very, very expensive. San Francisco Bay Area is very, very pricey. The units unrenovated are going for about $2,000, and renovated with the nice L shaped kitchens are going for about $2,700, $2,800. So you're saying it's working in Cincinnati that works in Fremont,
0: California. We'll get back to the show. with a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. It's no secret that everyone is trying to find a recession-proof investment right now. What if you could invest in one of the most recession-resilient asset classes of the last 25 years with one of the best teams in the U.S.? Self-storage is that asset class and Reliant Real Estate Management is that team. Reliant Real Estate Management is the 17th largest storage operator. They have sold over $1 billion in self-storage assets and have lost no investor principal with the average project-level IRR of 33% in the last three years. Right now, you can be one of the first to invest in their next fund at ReliantFund4.com. Fund 4 is a $100 million equity fund with seven properties already identified to close before the end of 2022. If you're an accredited investor, visit ReliantFund4.com to download the investment summary and schedule a call with Reliance experience team. That's ReliantFund4.com, R-E-L-I-A-N-T-F-U-N-D-F-O-U-R.com.
2: Eddie, give us some more of the math there. How much are yeah. you spending for that rent problem? And what kind of return are you getting?
1: We're spending about fifteen dollars to $18,000 for that extra $800. Bucks. I don't know if do that math. That's a pretty good. So it's a solid return on cost. The other thing that we end up doing, and I think we're doing it at that property as well, is we are adding washer dryers to the units. So oh, yeah, absolutely. We, yeah, anywhere we can find that opportunity, we'll do that. However, it's funny because I've seen situations where the rent pop that you get from a washer dryer install is not as much as you want it to seventy five dollars or fifty dollars even, and then you have to look at what the income that you're losing in your laundry room, <laughs> you know so you lose that income and you get it in the install, it's like, okay, well, now you're doing it to improve your occupancy, maybe. I feel like
2: there's some retention. Yeah, there's some
1: retention there. You're lowering your cap rate maybe on exit. Who knows? But for me, it's you're kind of like holding your breath sometimes in some of these. But generally speaking, adding washer and dryers works very well. Doing L-shaped kitchens, really going all the way to a quartz countertop instead of using laminate, that also needs to be a very, very good attractive feature for residents.
2: You're getting a 50% return on investment on your kitchen remodels at the least. Yeah. So Yeah, exactly. Um, at the lowest return, so absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, this is a little bit niche. I hope we don't lose our listeners here, but what do you feel about the two-in-one ventless washer dryers that you can put under the counter in a kitchen? They don't work that well. So yeah. they look good, good on thing. the tour. But you overload them very quickly. Very quickly. Um, you really just, you really just, it almost feels like, speaking from experience, I'm asking for a friend named Slocum here, that in my experience with them, it's almost like, especially if you have a tenant who works out, they're going to have to use that thing every day. Yeah.
1: And the problem is, because they don't work that well, your maintenance team is going to be called all the time. They're going to be inundated with, phone calls to the office, and complaints. And it's not really your fault. It's the machine that's designed poorly or just you know you sold a bill of goods. And now you're basically hurting your own business because of a different business, i.e. The, the washing machine company didn't develop a very good product. So now you're suffering some of the bad or the ill will instead of having a really nice laundry room. So that would be an instance where I would say maybe skip that because... It's hard to explain to an angry resident, hey man, I'm sorry, we just threw it in there so you can do your socks, but not your socks and your shoes and your sweats at the same time, you know? Yeah, I
2: get that. I will say the one place where I am content, not happy, but content with those is in buildings where a laundry room is not an option, common area laundry is not an option. The tenant base in the neighborhood demands on-site or in-unit laundry, and I just don't have anywhere place else to put it. A studio apartment, a one-bedroom apartment, a lower-level apartment, I can't ventilate. I'm taking garbage disposals out of all these apartments anyways, and so if it's a ventless 110 volt, I can just run it off of the electrical right there, leave it that's already there. It already has a switch because the disposal had a switch. It's super convenient. But I tell all my tenants up front, look, you just can't put that much stuff in this thing. If you work out and you have work clothes and workout clothes, you're literally going to be doing this every day. You just need to have that expectation going in. I'll tell you where the laundromats are. They're inconvenient, which is part of the reason I did this. But this is the best option available, given the circumstances. So I'm not entirely opposed. I will say one more anecdote. They're terrible for short-term rentals because you cannot get the sheets and towels washed and dried in general, but nearly not in nearly enough time. You need something that works a lot faster when you're trying to wash while you clean. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation, Eddie. I feel like I could ask you questions for the rest of the day, much less another hour. This is a short form podcast though. So are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Eddie, what is the best ever book you recently read? The Obstacle
1: is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday. Yeah. Pretty interesting. It's about the Stoics, especially in today's world with our finance debt markets all up in the tizzy and the stock market going crazy. Focus on what is, accept it, deal with it, and move on.
2: I want to plug that book here as well, Eddie. We are recording in late August, 2022. And there are some major events happening in American politics right now that I will leave unnamed because I want to make the point generally anyways. But whenever I see my friends on Facebook who range the political spectrum blow up and get in debates about these things that the government is doing, about things that are happening in the outside world, my first response is always chop wood, carry water. The things that I can control are the things that I can control. It's my responsibility to take care of my family, myself, my company, and I'm gonna focus on me. I'm gonna focus on what it is that I can do about my situation, and frankly, that's enough. That's gonna keep me busy if I really am doing what I can for myself. So a plug for Stoicism, a plug for Ryan Holiday, and a plug for The Obstacle is the Way, absolutely. Eddie, what is your best ever way to give back?
1: Right now, I'm on the board of trustees at an organization called the Children's Bureau. It's a 110-year-old organization here in greater Los Angeles that's focused on preventing child abuse. Prevention is obviously a very, very challenging aspect of their business, because how do you stop something before it happens? But it's with community outreach, it's with education, social work, a lot of hand-holding and intervention into the community. It's something I'm passionate about, and I really love working on fundraising and programmatic things that I can help with with the Children's Bureau. I'm also on the board of directors at a regional theater called the Center Theater Group. It's a nonprofit theater here in Los Angeles that I'm very passionate about, the arts and making sure the arts don't die with our streaming services and whatnot, movies and, and
2: television. Nice. Eddie, thus far in your commercial real estate investing career, what is the biggest mistake that you've made and the best ever lesson you learned from it?
1: I did a deal a few years ago. It was one of the newer projects, 04 Vintage, I think, that I've ever purchased. There was $1,000 upside in the rent. And I knew about, but I chose to not focus on the fact that somebody was building right next door to me or a block away class A product. And I thought, well, I won't compete with the class A. And there was already a class A building on the other side of my building. But what I thought, even though those rents were supporting my pro forma rent, in a small little downturn or during a lease up, they were able to special their rents in order to compete. And they beat me hands down because they had more amenities and they had a better product and et cetera, et cetera. So the idea that you can purchase, that was a tiny, the 28 unit building, next to two 150 unit buildings. So I had 300 units of competitive, Composition, I, yeah. Yeah, that I didn't really give a lot of credibility to because we were so far below them. But when they give away two months free rent, all of a sudden, Ooh. yeah, that, that makes yeah. it tough. So I think that's the biggest mistake. I didn't actually lose any money on it, but we didn't make a heck of a lot either. And it was a headache.
2: Tell us a little bit more, Eddie, about the lesson learned here. How did you grow out of this experience?
1: So the lesson learned was and I had an opportunity to potentially refinance a loan to stay in the project. But I really looked at the circumstances and I realized that what I should have realized before was the risks of owning this thing. I can't separate from my neighbors. I have to look at what they're doing and the trajectory they're heading, because they were class A, they had to follow other class A buildings in the local market. So all of a sudden with my class B building, I was really being forced to follow where the A's were rather than be in my own little space. So it taught me a lesson of number one, don't be the small guy on the block. If the block is filled with aspirational rents that you need, And number two, at the price point, I'm not sure if you have assets that are like this, but I was renovating a class B plus-ish kind of deal to compete with more of the A's. When you get an A luxury type unit, you have a resident profile that demands that level of service. So what it taught me is that you can't separate the service quality of an A with the service quality of a B, the, the the demographic of that renter profile, they demand the service, but you can't service a 28-unit building like you can a 200-unit building. It's just not possible. So all of a sudden, I'm trying to get people to do 24-hour maintenance or fix up a little unit to add a fitness center. You just can't do it. So I just live in that. Uh... You have to I live in that
2: 28-unit space, and what you're saying is giving me headaches all day. Yeah, yeah. Just thinking about it.
1: Yeah, it's really, really tough. And The other lesson is I try to stay larger. I try not to go below 75 units because I want a full-time person working there. It's very tough when you have to staff it with somebody. You only have 25 or 30 units or something like that. These things don't run by themselves, as you, as you know. They yes. are very labor-intensive.
2: They are. And I could ramble forever about how I self-manage. So how a lean and efficient business model is the only way that I can do it. The ability to do everything as remotely as possible. But as a management company, get on site affordably to take care of what needs to be taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. Eddie, what is your best ever advice?
1: My best ever advice is to, A, make sure that you're ready to do this. If you haven't taking a step toward being an investor or being an operator, make sure that you're ready and you're armed with information. But that said, if you are ready, bet on yourself because we're only on this planet for a little bit and you may as well go all in on the things that you can control, that it's your force of personality that's standing behind the product. I would say that for anybody in any business, as long as you're prepared, then believe in yourself and just do it.
2: Eddie, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this conversation, primarily about repositioning apartment buildings on the West Coast, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend that you know that we can add value to through this conversation. Thank you and have a best ever day.
1: Thank you.